Jai Guru, everyone. Jai Guru. Jai Guru. And welcome to this part, this episode of Yogananda Podcast. <laughs> we are on chapter two. Um, so we're going to kick off the whole chapter. And really what we thought we'd do, we are doing line by line. So we'll talk about the little chapter title that we have here. We'll talk about the contents of the whole chapter little bit on our expectations before kicking off the part that we will cover in this episode and if you do want to join in on reading as ever um go through the autobiography with us you can start at the beginning of the chapter of course chapter two and you can read up to father and i return to uh or early soon after the uh crematory rites so we're going to read up to the i felt powerfully drawn to the Himalayas um, and pause the video, pause the uh, the recording and, and go and read that if you want to read along on this episode with us. But really to zoom out a little bit, um, the chapter title itself, um, My Mother's Death and a Mystic Amulet. I think for me, this is probably one of the more mystical titles in the whole book and there, there are many of them. Um, and really one that whenever I was initially reading, I had no idea what to expect. I don't know about you guys, when I read this title, I didn't go into it with any kind of foreknowledge of, of what uh, was to come. And I think it's safe to say that it was a great surprise and a mystery to me. Um, so Yogananda did uh, capture with the word mystic, uh, capture the title well. Uh, what do you guys think? Is there is there anything any comments you'd like to like to make on on this choice of I, words in the title? Yeah, I mean the my mother's death is pretty straightforward, I guess. But the mystical amulet is the mystical part about it, and the, he goes into a lot of details, and we'll see that in the in the later parts of this chapter. Um, not today, but there there is a a component that kind of is is like. Um, where you like you know, see Guruji's life as a, like a normal life, but then it goes to the supernatural every now and then, and that's basically one of those. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's that he's linked that that ordinary, you know, everyday occurrence that everyone goes through in life, which is a death, and then he's linked it to mysticism through the use of the word amulet. And he he could have made we were discussing this. He could have made this actually a separate chapter but i think he linked the two things and made it a much more profound chapter by making the mystic element and adding it to the mother's death and then he also obviously uh, into he weaves in weaves in the the himalayan you know his 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 journey to the himalayas as well into that to make it mm. not as heavy perhaps so we, we think we could do this in four or five parts. Um, bear with us because there is so much content here. We 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 uh, are mindful we don't want to make these uh, episodes maybe four or five hours long. So we'll cover it as in as much detail as we can. And it is action-packed, really, this chapter, as, as every chapter is. And we have the pa tragic passing of his mother, of course. Um, the focus really being on before her death and really everything leading up to that. Um, and then another story of Paramahansa Yogananda's engagement with the divine. 
And it is a beautiful, um, beautiful story that it, it does really give an awful lot of detail on it, does the other, but we'll, we're going to get into that um, as well. Uh, I'll pause before I go on to, to give a recap of um, what's going to happen in this chapter, but Mike, do you want to jump in? Yeah, just one more thing on top of the content that you mentioned is the, the mother of all footnotes that he adds to the word amulets towards the end, and we're going to dive into that as well. Is that the longest yes. footnote? Do you, I, th I, I seem to recall a longer one. Somewhere. It's definitely up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With Yogananda's writings, he committed a lot of his life um, to, to the writings that he did, especially toward the end of his life. He could have written books upon books, I'm sure, with his, with his knowledge, right? So um, he's given us so much that uh, I'm sure this is just the tip of an iceberg of what really he probably could have went into, right? We could be reading on and on and on about all the mystical kind of elements of life, but gives us enough teasers in there um, that uh, that are well, well worth reading into if you have the time. Um, but so, yes, we have the, the offering of solace by, by the divine, um, and we can maybe call that some form of a, a vision um, that, he, that he has uh, about the passing of his mother. And we touch on the ramifications uh, for his family, for himself. Um, but he mentions his father in particular about his mother's passing. And that's quite of, uh, uh, of interest really for us. We'll cover that as well. And Paramahansa's uh, mission to escape to the Himalayas being thwarted by his brother and his cousin. Um, and that's predicted somewhat by his, by his mother. And the story about Paramahansa witness Yogananda's mother, um, uh, the special experience with Lahiri Mahishai that she has, and the visitation and strange gift of an amulet, which is uh, a major topic of this chapter uh, by a sadhu. So really, for me, looking back on, on this chapter, when I first read it, it, I was probably reading with such kind of fervor, you know, re reading, it, reading it at such pace everything, all these stories come at you with, um, yeah, um, uh, amazement going back to it. I do have a, a, a mission um, to, to make that I actually only read the autobiography of Yogi once, and this is me going over it to find Tithkum. So one of the more mysterious chapters for me is, is certainly this one, because at the time when I read it, I didn't understand the thing about really what I was reading, about um, the significance really of his mother is, stands out for me as, as well as the the significance of the amulet that Yogananda shrouds a mystery. Um, so I expect by the time we're done going over this with the fine tooth comb, I'll have a much deeper understanding of both uh, the relationship with his mother and the amulet. But Priyank, do you want to jump in? Yeah, this, this chapter is quite emotional, probably one of the most emotional ones, because everyone obviously has experienced the passing of a loved one but guruji makes his his grief very very real and you feel it when he talks about you know how how he uh, how he how he had this premonition and how he we're obviously going to get into it but how how he actually reacted but then also his longing for his mother and and you know in, in in various ways and then to the mother the the actual, the meeting, the you know, the prophecy of his birth, 
and the significance of his birth by Dahi Mahashaya. So all of that was really, really quite emotional. So I probably rank this as the most emotional of the chapters for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. It is uh, it is very emotionally charged. And I think this is, for me, something that I've taken away about this chapter, which is he uses that as a strength, Yogananda, and he teaches that in later lessons, how to use your emotions to your to your benefit, right? Um, and he certainly gets a response through his deep emotional, um, yeah, uh, response to his mother mother passing, uh, which yeah we're about to jump into. So that's the the overview of this whole chapter. Now we are breaking it down now, as I mentioned, um, mainly into three parts. So we're going to talk talk about the wedding itself um, that's mentioned and everything around that, the, the vision that he has, uh, and then the the tragedy, of course. And the chapter begins by saying that uh, the, his mother's great desire was really um, for the elder brother. Now, uh, you know, Yogananda's got a, a larger family, maybe the most these these days. Um, and initially, when I read that, I thought, wow, you know, the, the mother hears the mother saying that she'll find heaven on earth when she beholds the face of Ananda's wife and Yogananda there, he's thinking that he's going to go down the monk route and not marry and things like this. So uh, I wondered how young uh, Makunda at the time would have digested this information. It's, it seems like pretty well in general. He's he's just as wrapped in joy as, as his mother is. Mm. I, from from my own experience, my, my mother have had this similar dream of my marriage and grandchildren and things like that. But I, I would have thought reading, knowing how spiritually elevated his mother is, I would have thought that she doesn't have such a strong Indian sentiment for family as she as she does mm. here, but she clearly does. So maybe smacks me, in, you know, smacks my theory <laughs> out, the, out the door. <laughs> so like I, I always thought that like family, you know, the importance of family is overplayed in today's society and then I, I, I thought I would have like got a backup you know that backed up in some of Guruji's teachings but here it's like his mother's obviously quite holy and she's got that same sentiment so I thought that was an interesting parallel for my own life. I felt exactly the same when I read this I was like there's this saintly parent and then she's so much into cares so much about the wedding of her firstborn and feel this is probably them playing their role and trying to play their role as well as they can be a role model and that's um i'm guessing why they why why they show this so i guess when you have a family you might as well do it as well as you can in this incarnation yeah 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 commit commit to the to the maya in some in some ways yeah. he does mention that it's indian culture now I, what did you guys think of this indian culture versus others you know is, is sort of a question i'm from an irish background many of my my family you know it's a big family you know typical kind of catholic irish families you know they have at least three kids um each my my mother's uh, uh from a family of six herself so brothers and sisters and they all have at least you know three kids each um so 
you know, it tends to be quite big families there as well. And there is that inevitable pull towards the eldest being the most responsible, being the one that has to, you know, get, get the firm foundations in. Um, so I just thought maybe this is more of a universal thing that maybe mothers do uh, drive towards you know, this family unity. Uh, and that's the, the grounding that, that they bring in the role that they have traditionally played. Um, yeah, he describes the culture in this these, these these sets of paragraphs, but he doesn't actually use the word culture. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. True, yeah. true, true. Um strong Indian sentiment um was the word that he used. Like oh, um of course not the expert at all, and I don't want to be the the white person explaining Indian culture here, but I <laughs> what I heard is that the oldest son in an Indian family often has like a special role, like a, almost like a sec like a deputy father kind of role, and that's um, kind of when he gets married. That's that, that's also a, a very important function then, and I guess that's a key difference in in Western families. We don't really see it like that. Yes, indeed, it is the eldest son. So personally, I've got, I told you, I've got two older sisters, but my father passed away. So I was the patriarch quite early on in my family, even though we lived in in UK, the culture kind of pushes you in that kind of mode. And then it also places a lot of responsibility. Had I, interestingly, had not that, had that level of responsibility, I would not have been as successful materially, professionally, educationally, because I had that because I had that kind of culture where I've got this responsibility. I made sure I succeeded in my professional life, shall we say. That's something you have in common with Bhagavati Priyank. He also lost his father early and then had to pull the whole family through. And I guess you had a similar story not as difficult he seems to have gone through a lot of hardships when he was a boy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and we covered that in in good detail in in the last chapter so if anybody didn't see that you know be sure to check it out if you want to want to learn more about uh yogananda's father and his journey um it is super super interesting but yogananda meanwhile he, he was 11 years old as described here where his brother Ananta's um, uh, uh, patrol was being organized. And he was with his father. And I thought it was noteworthy here that the, you know, his mother was in Calcutta and she was very happy uh, supervising, helping to organize the, the wedding for her beloved eldest son. And the father was with Yogananda in uh, another city altogether. So. Um, they were quite far apart. And obviously we know what's around the corner, what's about to happen. Um, and I thought, well, here's another instance where Yogananda's almost spared the experience of, of being, I guess, in proximity to death with, with the ones that he loved uh, and loves um, very dearly. So I thought it was certainly noteworthy that he was with his, his father at this time. In this case, it was actually like Bareilly is like 300 miles away from Calcutta, from what I can see on the 
India map in the autobiography I'm estimating, of course. So physical distance is significant in this in this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as we're as we're about to see. Um, now, in, the text goes on to talk about Indian weddings, and I was reading this, and you can really get the impression about the ecstatic sort of joy expectations from the family uh it, it is a real show isn't it and it's quite opposite to maybe modern day you know uk weddings you know where i'd be more familiar with where people are downsizing everything to such a degree with covid and everything it's like these miniature weddings are, are a thing now in, in in many parts of the, the country but this is a very extravagant elaborate uh you know wedding and as far as i uh i'm, I'm aware of Indian weddings, it's um, maybe a bit more atypical, yeah. Um, and just thought to myself, I wonder, wonder why. Like, was that always the case? Did this develop recently? Um, such a joyous, splendid, elaborate day. Frank, can you tell us anything more about that? I'd call it. You said atypical. I thought it would. I thought in your perception of an Indian wedding, this is typical. No. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay you're right no, thanks yeah. for me up. <laughs> no 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 i thought you were making a different point that's why i asked no the, it is very typical my wedding mm -hmm. excluding the three bands i only had one band <laughs> he, <Really>? uh, it's, <laughs> well they called those marching bands yeah i had a marching band um the so the procession that he describes like um you know the taking going from your where you are to go pick up the bride is like a massive procession that is literally why did there was the gay throne that he describes is exactly what i had it's like i had a two two horse drawn carriage it's like chariot and i got married in india in case you were wondering yeah. um yeah, so, down the London London streets, <laughs> <laughs> and and um, yeah, so the, the carriage was, was led by a procession of a marching band and there's insanely loud music, not very not not for the spiritually inclined, shall we say? <laughs> but I I let my flat family plan all that stuff, so unfortunately I had to had to do it. I was surprised that they said that there was going to be a Scottish and an English orchestra. Is that something that is still the case or was that because special circumstances back in the day? I've never heard of such a thing. So, okay. But so then I'm, you know, I'm from a very middle class. So this is, this is quite a wealthy family, mm -hmm. you would say. Well, I know my uncle's pretty wealthy actually now and he, his children didn't get. My uncle is in a similar position that his father was, as I said, I mentioned before. But no, this is this is very grand. So, so mm. especially for the in those age days. Mm -hmm. And, and the, something I looked at, you know, he's got these orchestras, of course, as we mentioned, he's got the professional entertainers, you know, it's plural. So I, you can imagine you know, the variety there that might might be there would be pretty extravagant by the science of it. And priests. Well, that's plural. Now, typically, I would be used to weddings maybe having a priest or a minister or somebody given the rights, but um, one person. My, my mom and dad, they actually had two because Protestant and Catholic, and that was quite unique. 
I don't think many people would say that they've been in that position, but there's plural. And I once wondered really um, with the ancient rituals, there must have been many of them. And that would have required maybe different specialisms, different priests to, to do those specialisms. So there's, um, there's many, it's a multiple day affair and different days have a different ceremony or ritual. And hence you may have different priests and especially like the the girls' side would have a priest from their family, you know, the deities and the way they offer their worship, and the, the male side would have their own. So there's various priests that are doing various things on, during those multiple days. I I don't want to talk about the the building itself, but the fact that they rented the whole building for the wedding is pretty grand. And I wonder if that's just how it was being done back then, or if you've heard of something like this happening these days, um, or is it just uh, today's equivalent of just renting out a hotel for the wedding? You you kind of have to. So I'm going to India tomorrow mm-hmm. <laughs> for a wedding, yeah. in, in two weddings in India, and one of them is in, in our home village. And because of the sheer volume of people that are coming, they're hiring like two or three houses on in our mm-hmm. village. So similar to what uh, what's going on here because the sheer volume of people that are coming from all different directions of the globe so but I, uh, i'm gonna see where i stay i'm a bit nervous about <laughs> a bit nervous about such a big crowd i'm not in the middle of organizing weddings but i've got two weddings because it's brazil and the uk and i'm trying trying to think of ways to manage all the numbers and things like this so i'm glad reading this you know, I'm not Indian because that's a whole other level of organization and preparation required. It's not an enviable position unless it is something you really truly do love. And of course, um, Ananta had his dear mother, who was, as, as mentioned, joyously supervising preparations. And I'm sure he was very happy with the help. Um, and we do have this mention of 50 Amherst Street, and this was a large newly acquired house um, by the family uh, and it is something that um, does play a role in this story and maybe not for reasons that you might expect now we have a story from Mejda this the book that just keeps giving um, and Mike is going to kindly read a little bit about the 50 Amherst Street and his history Yes. So first, I want to give some context on Master Mahasaya, who later in the autobiography, there will be a whole chapter on him. And he is an interesting guy. Like um, we, we mention him now because this same building, 50 Amherst Street, he will later acquire or rent, I'm not sure, but he will def- establish um, his kind of... Um, is it a society or an academy or it's a it's it's a um, religious academy I would call it and he establishes it at 50 Amherst Street and Guruji has some really profound moments um, with Master Mahasaya. Um, you want to jump in, uh, jump in, Lauren? Yeah, I just want to quickly point out that 
Master Mahashai and Lahiri Mahashai are two separate people. Just for anyone who may be thinking, well, they sound similar, is it the same? I thought it was, and then I realised it wasn't. So yeah, just wanted to throw that one in there in case anyone gets confused. I, th I thought it was, the, initially thought it was the same person mm. as well. Um, and yeah, and there's another Mahashai later, and I obviously used to get confused later with Mahashai. <laughs> but Mahashai means magnanimous, I believe. So it's like mm. a kind of like a bestow, bestowed title mm. that someone may confer onto you, or like that you may be generally known as, like a wise one. But uh, yeah, Master Mahashai, chapter nine is uh, he's got a whole glorious chapter dedicated to him. Yes. Yeah, I was actually just gonna throw some of one of us under the bus by asking them what Mahashaya means, but Brian <laughs> has foreseen this, very prepared as oh, always. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's a, it, he's an interesting guy because uh, Guruji, he's definitely a saintly person. Um, and Guruji has um, some profound experiences with him. There is this uh, story where they go to the lecture hall at university and Guruji is bored and then they sneak out and Afterwards, Guruji has this experience um, and then sees the divinity in, in Master Mahashaya and um, goes so far that uh, he believes he might be his guru, but he then tells him, no, your guru will come later and he will come in the next chapter after that. Brian? Master Mahashaya is also, this is relevant because what we're about to discuss, he bestows like he kind of allows Guruji to have a vision, uh, an experience of the Divine Mother. And then there's a lovely, that story in chapter nine. And and then, so he's got this kind of ability to, for, you know, for God to heed to his requests. But the reason this Cosmic Mother, I'm bringing this up now, is because it's relevant for, a, for the death of his actual mother, which we'll come on to a bit later. Okay, so now... That we know a little bit who Master Mahasaya is, I can read this section. Um, and it goes, Master Mahasaya told us, since the house was vacant, and they're talking about 50 Amherst Street, I took it for my school. I am a devotee of the Divine Mother. What evil can befall me? I have no fear of inimical ghosts. It is true that the grieving spirit of a man who had committed suicide haunted this house. Thus, the tragedies that were destined to happen anyway were attracted to this place for fulfillment. The spirit tried to frighten me as well, but as I am blessed, uh, I'm, as I am a blessed son of the mother, he could do me no harm. Instead, he entreated me for deliverance from his plight. I prayed to the mother for release of his earth, earthbound spirit and performed many oblations for him. He was freed, and then the house has had only peaceful vibration since then, yeah. So it was a haunted house, as it were. Yes. So this this would have occurred after they, you know, they, they moved into 50 Amo Street and then moved out. So since it must have been haunted since then, and there's actually more, actually. During the wedding, more haunt, uh during the wedding they i don't know mike you want to come back before i do so i talk about that yeah i, I would 
just ask myself if we know we do we don't know when this this man committed suicide if it was before the wedding but we could have been right yeah probably mm. yeah yeah maybe but it was an interesting story because that means that his spirit kind of lingered which we obviously experience as like ghosts ghost stories and to to release him this master marshal had to perform many oblations to release his spirit uh, rituals in other words so he did that but vicky amherst street has yeah mike no, i just wanted to uh, connect the dots that think bad things would happen anyway but they would have they are drawn to this house and so probably guruji's mother's uh death probably happened there for that reason right mm. as a precursor to the death what actually happened was that um is in Mejta during the wedding preparations which are beautifully described actually in Mejta they um uh, Ananta and Gnanada who is their cousin went to the market to purchase you know make purchases for the wedding and by the time they'd returned they must have eaten something dodgy as you do in India uh he was Gnanada was was deathly ill apparently he had to be carried upstairs and his mother diligently nursed him but he could not be saved because he died in the house um, with asiatic cholera and because his mother was nursing him you know selflessly and unconditionally with faith she also came into close contact with him and then that is how she contracted cholera asiatic cholera pretty insane how quick this happens right like you go to the market and you come home and you're already so ill that people say you can't be saved pretty it is pretty quick when you have something dodgy to, <laughs> dodgy to eat usually your stomach growls doesn't it straight away yeah and it leads us into the next part of the conversation which is the vision and really part of this that we're, we're going to talk about is the dismissive nature that his father has towards towards Yogananda um, because he, he claims uh, Yogananda's father claims that uh, your mother you know can't, can't be dying and we're going to go into this in detail now but she's in perfect health she's in excellent health so you know that kind of gives that context as maybe to why as to why that happened but in general, you know, him and his father, as Yogananda describes here, were in great spirits. Um, but then as suddenly as the death ultimately did happen, Yogananda had this ominous vision. So that came came on quite quickly uh, as well, quite quite suddenly. Um, now, Bef sorry? Yeah, before the vision, the there was a very interesting wording he said he was awakened by a peculiar flutter of the mosquito netting over the bed. He said the flimsy curtains parted, and then he saw the vision. So this 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 peculiar flutter, I just wanted to discuss this. So many times we're given signs, aren't we? Signs that are... Uh, You're the alchemist, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about where my where my affinity for signs is coming from it, but you're right, Mike. It must be, it must be Paolo. 
good old Coelho. Yeah. Yeah. He um yeah, the alchemist is phenomenal, man. That's just a book of some phenomenal signs. But we we experience signs, don't we? And then often we don't we don't realize their significance until events have transpired. But if your intuition is good and you've been doing your careers every day, then <laughs> then God will talk to you. God and Gurus will talk to you through those signs. And this sign was simply a flutter. So he had this vision, but he obviously, he was alerted and awakened by the flutter, this peculiar flutter of the mosquito in netting. And I don't know if you guys have uh, been in, in bed with mosquito netting, but uh, that goes over you, but it's uh, it's not very nice. But you have to do it because Chris knows the mosquitoes are deadly. Yeah, unless you're not in mosquito consciousness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I do have some experience with mosquito nets myself and, and the whole extremely hot weather and sleeping sleeping in places that, uh, yeah, would help cool you down. And it is very romantic. Um, and Yogananda, no doubt, would have been enjoying that evening that he was having with his father, I'm sure. Um, they, were, they were in gala spirits, as he describes it very poetically um, and very beautifully. But as he would soon see that the vision that was to come was quite, uh, as he describes, an ominous one. Um, but before we jump into that, Priyank, do you have are we, something? Are you, are you now, Chris, going to watch out for peculiar flutters? <laughs> I look out for everything um, <laughs> in my life. Um, so, some signs are more obvious than others. Uh, but when, when you were living, when you were living on that boat, did you like watch out for peculiar waves? <laughs> yeah, you, you get a lot more noises. Let's say that would wake waken you up in the middle of the night, and yeah, none of them, none of them turned out to be as uh, wondrous visions mm -hmm. as maybe Yogananda's Sundan. Lauren's got no clue what we're talking about. Chris used to live on a narrow boat. I kind of guessed, okay. but it wasn't sure. <laughs> <laughs> you have to get used to all the noises in our boats. Yeah, none, none of them, none of them are really, yeah, quite pleasant. It's usually some people walking past the streets, you know, singing drunkenly in the middle of the night. But anyway, Mike, I I was um, inaugurated as a, a real Angelino, like. Two three nights ago, we had a four point two uh, magnitude earthquake. Like at, mm -hmm. it was at three in the morning, and I was waking up and everything was shaking, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And and uh, your instinct tells you, "Oh no, this is my house. It's breaking down." And then it stopped. And then I mm -hmm. pulled out my phone. It's like, "Oh yeah, there was an earthquake just now." Okay, great. My my laptop, Mike. After like a couple of hours, starts like the screen starts being getting fuzzy and vibrating. Just <laughs> just as you said, my my house started shaking. My screen started shaking. I thought you were going through another earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> and now I've got a consistent screen shake, but I'll live with it. There you go, Mike's Mike's the the, the power of the word is very strong with Mike. Yes. There you go. I should. I need to be careful. The force is good exactly. The yeah. force mm. is strong with that one. <laughs> so, so here we have you know the main the bulk of um you know what we'll talk about in this uh, in this section of the vision yogananda saying that there is an ominous vision um really he goes into some detail actually and it's it is super fascinating 
um, the way he describes it, because his mother um, appeared to him and really she whispered to him to, to awaken his father um, and directions, quite specific directions to take the first available train, you know, at four o'clock this, you know, in the morning and rush to Calcutta if um, they were to meet. And he describes her looking like wraith-like, so not fully formed or not fully manifested or anything like that, but, but certainly there in, in his vision. Um, and before we kind of jump into the response of his father and everything, everything there, I just thought, how interesting is this section? Because it's just a couple of sentences, but really from that, you know, what does it, what does it tell us? You know, the strength of the relationship with his mother is maybe something that you could take away from it. Um, she simply says, awaken your father. So would she have seen what was going on in the environment that the father would have been asleep? In? She intuitively sensed she could understand the environment in some way, but it's, it's very specific, isn't it? Um, to instruct Yogananda in this way. Um, I just thought it was, it was exceptional, really, very, very interesting. Um, to to uh, for Yogananda to give us this explicit information, but Mike, what's what's your take on it? I I was always thinking if you are like married to someone that this would be the closest person to you, right? And um, I was always wondering if she appears to someone in a vision, why wouldn't she appear to her husband, but rather to her to her son, and that might have to do i mean i can only speculate maybe it was just um uh because he's this avatar is maybe it's just easier or maybe the vision happened because he it had to happen to him because it was his kind of spiritual advancement that made the vision happen i'm i'm, I'm not really sure but that that was kind of, i was wondering about significance that her she appeared to him and then he making a plea to the father in the end rather than going direct yeah he the mother the mother son and the father daughter relationship mm. seem to be like really strong don't they um mm -hmm. emotionally energy wise as well and and mm -hmm. like intuitive connection so i feel like that is one factor but also the you know we're going to read later on in this chapter we're going to read about Lahiri Mahashaya and, you know, the connection that he, and the prophecy that he had and, you know, the connection that Lahiri Mahashaya had with his, with his mother. So it is, this is like three-way connection because, because, because he kind of like baptized, spiritually baptized him in that first meeting. So it was like this three-way connection. So she then obviously knew the significance of Mukunda's life. And so like she, probably would have probably would have given him a bit more attention energy wise than the rest considering what Lahiri Mahasha had told her. Yeah. I also find it really interesting as to what happens after she speaks those words because Bukunda says or Yogananda says, uh, father, father, mother is dying. So you know, in a in a usual 
uh, vision that you'd expect. You'd expect that person to say, oh, you know, I'm dying, come and see me. But she doesn't actually say that. So it kind of shows how strong their bond is, that she doesn't even need to utter the exact words for Yogananda to actually know what's going on and to feel that so strongly and to know um, the action that he needs to take. So again, I feel like it's really reflective of that, that bond that they have as mother and son. And I love that the father continues to play this role of like dubious, mm. doubting, <laughs> doubting and being wary at first of any proposal, because no doubt, and we know from Mukunda's childhood that he had, he was very eccentric. So he's, he probably had to filter, had to filter things a lot when it came to Mukunda from what's serious and what's uh, things that are beyond his compre comprehension and things, more importantly, things that he can do something about. Mukunda might have like said so many things, but what can what can a father do if your son's talking about God? Mm. And it's probably also a balance you have to strike as a father, right? When you you have to raise an avatar who basically sees on all it's like it's, it's it's very superior in in every way kind of and but still as a father you have a role to play you have to um be the authority you have to put boundaries down for your son and and then every now and then he does something that is hard to explain for yourself where you go like oh my god what a great being he is this is a question that i actually had for for maybe our listeners as well, um, the the uh, the rest of us, is how much would his father really have been up to speed with everything that was going on in Yogananda's life? Because in some of the experiences that he's had that he talks about, his mother was very much involved. Um, and I wondered if there was notes anywhere to say whether or not, say, the, the mother really related this to the father. I assume she did. I just assume, you know, the father really knows everything that's going on in young Mukunda's life and all the mysteries that his brother's reporting on in Mejda book and everything. But I wondered, maybe he didn't know quite as much as what I might assume that, that he knew, um, because you, you would think that given his experience with Lahiri Mahishaya, um, his initiation into Kriya Yoga, I would have, I'm surprised to hear really that Yogananda is reporting that he was dismissed by his father to have this vision i was really surprised by this so i can only kind of think to myself well maybe maybe he didn't think that the powers of visions were really that strong in mukunda maybe he didn't wasn't as aware what do you guys think i think i think that he was aware but there's nothing he can do about various things because this was like at midnight and what can he do cause chaos to try and get to get get back but I reckon Mukunda was often, and we know from Mejta that he had many eccentric experiments, shall we say, and we're, one of them, we're going to talk about one of them a bit later in this episode. And and then and then his father, very, very with very with a lot of capable, um, you know, spiritual power, was able to correct things and alter how, what was happening um, for Mukunda and then warn him and things like that. So I think he was very in tune and very spiritually adept. So he would have known, but in lots of instances, there's nothing that he could have done. Hmm. This just 
my hot take right now because I, I really don't know. And I, I would assume that both of his parents were very spiritually advanced or even avatars, but they also played a role. Um, and I feel like um, up until as long as the mother was alive, I mean, Bhagavati found Lahiri Mahashai through that, um, through his colleague. But I feel like the spiritual authority in the family was the mother. And then once she passed away, it, they also say later that um, um, the father became more reclusive and um, meditated more. And he maybe turned into the spiritual authority maybe later on um, after, after her death. And I assume that um, it was a traumatic experience for the kids that the mother passed away, but I'm guessing it was also for the husband, and that might have might have turned uh, he might have turned that into um, uh, a, a new zest for for like a spiritual longing, possibly. That's just a hot take. It's not. I can't back it up with any uh, any uh, books. We we like yeah. hot takes here, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Events do change us, though, don't they? They do yeah. push us towards certain uh, ways on our path, which can be very useful. Um, but yeah, something that struck me when I was reading this is, obviously, we can only speculate. We, we will never be in his father's mind, so we will never truly know really how they experienced their son or what they thought. But for me, it's quite reflective of how children are often dismissed and what they have to say is often not taken into full appreciation and consideration when actually you know they do say that children are closer to God and spirituality because they're so unfiltered uh, and I find it really interesting that this happens to him as a child it's, it's like a lot of us I'm sure we've all had experiences where we've expressed something to an adult and it's been you know thrown away um, but in this instance it was quite it was quite an important vision, wasn't it? And one that really affected all of them in the end. And I do, I do actually wonder what would, what, what could have, would have happened if his father did listen. But obviously, that was not meant mm. to be written in the course of time. So, I, I need another name for devil's advocate who can give me one. Because <laughs> it, you know, it, it's good to play devil's advocate in a sense. Um, sometimes uh, to tease out some learnings for you know some takeaways from this but I, I i agree with what you guys are saying and mike you know um a highly advanced being so uh in like about the certain he was uh, being initiated in korea and, and very devotional so he would have been very intuitive and i, I like i fancy fancy um that maybe he was a cog in the grand play in this sense that we've talked about before that Yogananda was spared from the experiences of, of death in his life and maybe this was him acting it's this super conscious subconscious way to spare Yogananda from this death like I, I have this fanciful idea that maybe he's you know this the hand of God is working through him in this way whilst it's you know maybe harsh and seemingly quite strict or stern but actually has this grander part to play in Yogananda's unfolding. Um, and uh, yeah, we see this repeating throughout his life that he spared these experiences. So I like to think that it's a, it's a good thing that he was 
a little bit more stern in, in this sense, but there is a topic then of hallucinations or visions because his father obviously accuses Yogananda of having a vision or having a hallucination uh, versus the vision that we see he actually had. And how do we know when one is real and one is fake and how can we train ourselves to know these things? Um, they're, they're mysteries mysteries to me, but we did a little bit of reading and there's a excerpt from God Talks with Arjuna that Paramahansa Yogananda does give a bit of a warning um, that Priyad can kindly read out for us. A necessary warning to students is a quote from Yogananda. Do not think you are spiritually advanced just because you have heard a lecture or read a book on cosmic consciousness or because you fancy yourself to have attained it or because you have experienced astral visions. They are entertaining and enlightening, but still in the domain of matter. Yes, and that's Yogananda's words to say visions they they exist you can see um much in life but don't get too distracted uh by this keep your keep your uh, attention at where it should be but there were many instances that you're going to have visions that he did share many of them with us and not all in the autobiography of a yogi because it would simply be too much to all add into this book but in other books man's eternal quest um and uh, there's a great vision that he talks about Krishna and Jesus. And I thought uh, it would be nice for us to read uh, read this one. Lauren, do you want to kick mm -hmm. us off? And this is Yogananda's vision whilst he was in Boston. A few years later in Boston, I again saw Jesus. I was meditating and deeply praying to God because I felt that for three days I had forgotten him. I had been so engrossed in fulfilling the responsibilities he had given to me. I told the Lord, I'm going to walk out of this work. The right attitude is to love God and love his work because of him. Those who do missionary service but never make the effort to meditate or commune with God never find him. Because I felt that my activities had taken me away from God, I prayed, Lord, I will go away. I will not reign, remain in America and do your work unless I know you are with me. Then a voice came through the ether like a beam of light. What do you want? You cannot go. Many times in my life, God has thus prevented me from carrying out my desire to run away from my duties <laughs> to this cause, to be only with him. I replied to the divine voice. Let me see on a sea of gold, Krishna and Jesus and their disciples. Even as I made this inward request, I saw those divine ones coming toward me. It is a hallucination, I thought. If the person meditating with me sees this also, then I shall believe. Instantly, my companion exclaimed aloud, oh, I see Christ and Krishna. Then I rationalized. This is thought tra uh, transference. I was doubting and praying to God to help my disbelief when the voice said, when I leave, the room will become filled with the fragrance of the lotus and whoever comes shall notice it. As the vision vanished, the whole room became permeated with a marvelous lotus essence. Others entering the room even hours later noted the aroma I could doubt no longer. 
such a great excerpt, isn't it? That Yogananda is there having this miraculous vision, this great interaction with the divine, and yet he's challenging, saying, "Hey, I need more. You know, I need more. I can't, I can't believe what what I'm seeing. I need, I need to need confirmation." Um, and he gets it, doesn't he? Uh, and not through himself, but through a a third party um, that uh, really does affirm for him more and more. But he does challenge it. He doesn't just believe, you know, blindly immediately what he might see, uh, which is, is is so great, isn't it? Very very um, very good lesson for us all. Like so the. The, the kind of criticism that Guruji has when he has this vision is so interesting that he goes, oh, no, no, this is just um, a hallucination or no, this is just a, a thought transfer. It's like, I wouldn't never come up with this. And I wonder if any of the readers would come up with this. And for me, the only conclusion why he puts this in the book is because in a higher age, people will read this. And for them, this might, they might rationalize it like that because those might be things that are more common then than they are now. Mm. And visions were, as we, we've talked about in the previous uh, part, was uh, quite common in an avatar's life, such as Yogananda's. Yeah, when Sri Yukteswar when, so. uh, appears to him, he also tells him like, oh, you're not really here, it's just a vision. And then he has to touch him to tell him. He's here, right? Mm. Yeah, it's hard to distinguish the reality. I mean, this is a really interesting one that he wants to see, you know, mm. Jesus and, and Krishna in a sea of gold, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a vivid imagination. <laughs> um, I certainly wouldn't, I don't think I would have come up with something so so colorful, brilliant. And as uh, Priyank, have you had any hallucinations recently that you mistook provisions or vice versa? Hallucinations. No, I never had a hallucination, <laughs> but uh, had some had some other things that are akin to it. But let's not go into let's not go into Sh that. Go into. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful, yeah. If you're if you're blessed with it, as Yogananda says, um, yes, they occur. But let's let's focus on on other things. So that's um, that's part of the vision in this chapter. We probably could talk a lot more about that, but really moving on to the next topic of the tragedy which does befall um himself and his his family which is his mother mother passing and really he describes that um the uh himself and his father really leave upon getting news and the the morning after Yogananda's vision to confirm that his mother was very ill they leave um to get to get a train um to go to calcutta to see the mother um, now his uncle, it's interesting that in includes this um, part to say that his uncle was there and provides some solace to him that he, he doesn't receive um, all that well because she he doesn't um, believe the uncle's words that she is indeed alive and, and okay. But there is a hurried journey then for Yogananda and his father across, um, I think, as Priyank said, 300 miles to get to see his mother. And here he says something quite shocking, actually. I'm not sure if I really picked up on it the first time I read this, which was he was to hurl himself on the railway tracks. And this was a abrupt determination that arose within himself. Um, and I just thought, wow, this is an emotionally charged part of the book. 
and something that Yogananda is very open open with. He's sharing with his, you know, the emotions were running so strongly within himself that he couldn't imagine a life without his mother. That just really shows us um, how strongly he felt about his mother and how close he was to his mother. He qualifies it by saying that her salacing black eyes had been my refuge in the trifling tragedies of childhood. Um, earlier, we he talked about the kind of the helpless humiliations of childhood, but here you're talking about the tragedies. Um, before mm -hmm. we talked about the his like his in his inability because his small physical body and his his mind, you know, being and his and it's his his mental mental capacity being small at that time. Maybe he wasn't expressed. He was he wasn't able to express himself properly or fully and perhaps that is what he's talking about with trifling tragedies because up as an upbringing he up to the age of 11 where he is now it seems to he would have had quite a good childhood so i can't think of many normal tragedies that you and i would have that he had um, so he must be talking mm. about something metaphysical mm. I really empathize with him, though, in this moment. Just imagine you're an 11-year-old boy and you know your mother is dead or dying and no one's listening to you. And here you are, you have to hold that emotional weight in inside you. And you're a child. I know, obviously, he's this avatar and he's very, you know, gifted with his soul capacity, but just, just imagine how that, could feel it's it's gut-wrenching to actually think think on that and he he had to experience that at such a young age um and really I guess he's also giving a voice to those who have lost parents so young and an insight as to perhaps what that even feels like as a child um so yeah it's actually it's actually really touching and I mm -hmm. think it's a very important part uh, for him to express so deeply in this chapter he does say that rather harshly to his father that he would never forgive himself and that even further that he wouldn't actually forgive his father i mean that's he's a he's a young he's a young boy maybe we may have reflected on some harsh emotional words used when we were younger to our parents that literally maybe um which we which we hadn't said and this i'm sure is something that um as you're gonna have to said anguish caused him to add bitterly um nor shall i ever forgive you i'm sure he reflected back on that later um <laughs> with uh, a little bit of a a difference of, of feeling but certainly in that moment he was he was very riled as as he would be showing his um his human side Pallid human side. Yes. But I feel like he also shows um, a degree of non-acceptance if bad things happen in the world. And I feel like some people, I don't know, like it's difficult to explain, but you have to imagine he already freed himself from all earthly karma. So what he, him, him coming back is Seva, right? He came back as a volunteer to help others find the path. And so um, I feel like 
divine mother is striking a balance with him to give him the experiences that his disciples later want to see and read about um, that make him very, I guess, relatable, but also not to give him so many experiences that he said, okay, the divine mother, I'm out. This is too much for me. I don't, that's not what I signed up for <laughs> when, I, when I came down here, because I'm, I'm doing this here because I, I, um, I come back, I want to do a service to humanity and this is just not what I thought this would be. I feel, I'm not sure if there's actually a dynamic like this going on, but I like to think so. Yeah, I, I agree. So basically he's not accepting that um, life has to involve loved ones coming into and out of your life because on a, on a on a physical level it feels like your your mum may have left you but spiritually no one can ever leave you and nor can you ever leave them and god can't leave you nor can you leave god so it's um it's something that uh that i think he's talking from perhaps a level that is deeper than just the physical physical presence of someone which i think i really could really good point mike but um in 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 Medjda, this story uh you know where he he kind of in in the autobiography kind of says you know they reached the home and it was only to confront the stunning the stunning mystery of death and Medjda, um like he talks a lot more detail about this and we'll talk about that in a minute but um they interestingly they met their uncle along the way and he asked um he asked his uncle, like, is she, where is she, is she alive? And then his uncle kind of, like, tells every kid what they want to hear, just mm. tell them, yes, of course, she's alive. But you know, young Mukunda did not, did not believe him. And uh, wondering why the uncle is added to this, to this narrative, doesn't really, on the, on the first glance, it doesn't really add much to have the uncle there and giving him this false sense of assurance because we we knew that to either him to be lying or completely wrong because yeah just giving offering him some sort of solace which is what parents do perhaps we shouldn't do shouldn't lie to us shouldn't yeah. lie to shouldn't lie to kids because we think that they can't handle it because he's gonna have to handle it and he did not handle it did he very well um perhaps no. this, this may have well have, may have been because his uncle kind of lied to him his uncle said that, you know, of course she's alive, but he wasn't. Um, Chris? I like to think, um, Mike, what you just said, that Yogananda went through the experiences maybe for a, a lesson to us, right? That as humans, maybe not on uh, the, the level of Yogananda and the gurus, um, many, many of us are quite emotionally led through life. And Yogananda went through um these very emotional experiences and were able you know was able to use them as we see in this next paragraph to storm the very gates of heaven and how many of us can say that we've been so productive with the high levels of emotion that we've experienced in life and he cried to divine mother and divine mother answered him so that's uh, before certain... before we get there i just wanted to talk about how his reaction was so he kind of 
I don't know if you're, are you going to get there, Chris, or should we come back to that? Or should uh, we do it now? It. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he said he collapsed to an almost, so it's it's quite, the, the wording is really profound. So as as they reached, they, they, it was only to confront the stunning mystery of death. Really powerful words, the stunning mystery of death. And then to make it, to make, to hit the message, to make the message hit home, he says, I collapsed into an almost lifeless state. And in Medjda, guys, if you scroll down on that, I've, I've, I've found some, some bolstering material from Medjda for this. Um, Lauren, Lauren, do you want to read that section? Mm, it's very interesting. It says, Father Medjda did not reach Calcutta before mother died. Medjda had a strange premonition when he came into the house on Amherst Street. He called out, mother, mother, we have come, and frantically asked, where is she? Those in the hallway broke down and began to wail. In a frenzy, Medjda turned to dash out of the house, shouting, I will get her, I will bring her back. Ananta caught him and held him to his breast. Medjda cried, release me, release me, and collapsed, unconscious. Mutely, father stood watching Medjda, stunned by mother's death and Medjda's foreknowledge of this tragedy. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, it's before that, he knows, but it's like in this moment, he doesn't. In a way, it's like it's it's finally hit him, hasn't it? Um, and and he wants to stay in the like a state of disbelief or like mm, it can't be true. Yeah. So he's like, it's very sad, isn't it? Um, yeah. He kind of like he goes, becomes unconscious, and Ananta has to like kind of restrain him because he's like running out of the house as an eleven-year-old boy. Okay. It reminds me of the story that we're going to later go into with Sri Yukteswar and the passing and the idea was that it was almost better that he was there because he, he may have actually held back the, the necessary passing of the of the soul um, because of his deep prayers and, and his sheer the sheer power of his prayers might have actually blocked something that was ordained, preordained. Yeah, and and he oftentimes um uh, like, I guess in this young age, not, but later on, he kind of, when something happens, he feels like, no, I'll bring them back from the dead. And it, it happens a few times where he kind of is very determined, no, I'm not going to let this happen. And I guess sometimes it is like Chris said, it's just um, meant to happen right now. So there's just nothing you can do. I'm, I'm going to continue mm. reading. Mother's death on Tuesday, the 26th of um, April, 1904. After her death, many of us relatives, um, of our relatives wept at the mention of her name. She was not only an educated and pious woman, she was compassionate and understanding. Whenever we went to Ichapur to visit our relatives, she saw to it that we first went to see those of low income, lest they be in need of something or other. She always seemed to know beforehand what each one required and took with her the needed aid. How she had such foreknowledge, I do not know. Yeah, noticed um, Indian Indian women tend to have that, <laughs> this, this uh, capability, especially like 
really motherly or loving ones, especially when guests come over. They have this uh, innate capability of just seeing what the need is of the guest and and fulfilling it even before they ask or sometimes even before they come to the house. Uh, we're like, preparing things. My mum and my grandmother used to often do that. Yeah, well, great. Sorry, Mike, go ahead. I have, I just find this a uh, very beautiful virtue in people. And I remember the first time I went to Dakshinaswar Ashram, I um, first talked to a devotee from who was from Kolkata, but she she lives in Vienna. And she gave us some, some uh, uh, money to, to donate, but she was like writing us a list. So you have to say this much money is for this person for that thing. This much money is for this person. And then, and then I remember uh, when, we, when we came there, we had to write it all down. And it was very important that every penny was accounted for the right thing. Priyank mm -hmm. quite rightly interrupted me earlier to bring back the logical steps because um, indeed we had um, uh, young Mukunda here confronting the, the mystery of death, as he puts it, um, collapsing into this lifeless state. Um, and interestingly, in the same paragraph, he actually says that years passed before any reconciliation entered his heart. Now, I want, wanted to clarify here with you guys what really was meant by this because yes, the, the following part is miraculous that he talks about storming the very gates of heaven, as I mentioned, you know, using this you know strength of emotion that he has to get a response from the divine mother herself, which is an amazing read. Um, but he said then years pass before any reconciliation enters heart. So so which came first, and and maybe are we to read in this that? Maybe the storming of the very gates of heaven happened quite quickly around the death of his mother, but it wasn't really for many years afterward that this this occurrence that he actually had some re reconciliation. I think the years past is true, and he we actually have to read that sentence and then read Mejda because uh, we in Mejda talks about his his desires to you know, to experience the love of his mother again. And earlier we discussed Master Mahashaya. So if you guys open card 3.1, we discussed Master Mahashaya. And uh, we said, remember that he, he, he was the, he's mentioned in chapter nine um, of the autobiography of a yogi. And he was a devotee of Ram Krishna as well. But he, you know, Guruji and um, young Sananda Lal Ghosh would 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 go and see Master Mahasaya, and you know they would offer offer their devotions to Mother Kali, who we know Mukunda was very, you know, very had a strong affinity to, and and um, so he actually um, wanted Master Mahasaya to share this joy of Divine Mother and give him that notion. And in chapter nine, we actually see it. But he also, interestingly, wanted Master Mahashai to help him experience or, you know, have the love of his birth mother again. And Mike, if you can read read that section that I've got. This, uh, this is pretty 
terrifying. So if you want to skip ahead five minutes, now I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> no, no, this is the rated R section now. Okay. Um, on another occasion, we asked him if he would call our mother from the astral world to appear before us. At first, he refused, but we were persistent. Finally, he acquiesced. Uh, come on. Uh, go come, on come, a, come, come on a Tuesday oh yeah, evening. Uh, come on a Tuesday evening. But you must promise to sit very still and not detain her for long. We readily agreed. The appointed evening found Master Mahasaya um, deep in meditation. We sat behind him without moving. For almost two hours, the great saint meditated. Then, without turning around, he softly said, look behind you and see who is standing in the doorway. We turned and saw our beloved mother smiling at us, her hands resting on either side of the doorway. We cried out, mother, mother. We wanted to rush up to her, but Master Mahashai told us not to move. You may speak to her if you wish, he said. Mother, do you remember us, we asked. She replied sweetly and clearly. I keep constant watch over all of you. The Divine Mother is protecting you. Saying this, she vanished. We kept this marvelous event secret from everyone except Father. He mildly rebuked us. It is troublesome to a soul to make such demands upon it. From that time, I often saw our mother in dreams, but never again did I behold the vision of her form as we did that day in the house on 50 Amherst Street. Absolutely mind-blowing. Beautiful. <laughs> um, I don't know if it is beautiful. Lauren, what do you think? It's interesting from our discussions in the previous episode that, you know, when he tried to summon his mother in, in another way, in that t terrifying uh, <laughs> cause of events that we talked about, and, you know, his father said, no, don't, don't do that, and he took it quite seriously. But actually, he did manage to get his wish fulfilled. In, uh, that wasn't manner, that, wasn't his, that wasn't his mother i think he was just oh, okay to, it was a con contracted the departed but his mother has only just passed so that oh, right. was just okay so not that was just he was necromancy linked. he was just practicing he, well, hmm. he was obviously learning the tricks of you know, yeah. mysticism there but here it's a definite right. it's a with the help of master Mahasha, it's a definite uh, yeah. manifestation um, mm. And the reason I, I I said I think Mike said it's beautiful. In a sense, it is beautiful because he's getting this uh, very innocent wish. But his father tells him later on, like, don't you know, it's it's troublesome for a soul to 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 make this kind of demand from it because this would have been many years, months perhaps. I don't know how long it would have been, months perhaps, or maybe even a year after his mother's passing. Or even days we don't actually know, but it it could have been one of two things. It could have he could have actually summoned the soul and you know the physical atoms materialized the mother's form, or it could have been like a ghostly like vision that Master Mahasha and Divine Mother were allowing him to have. So we don't know the exact the exact you know way that this happened. Mike. 
Yeah, I, I agree. So I feel like on a on a level of um, love between souls, it's very beautiful that they. But then, like Bhagavati said, it's wrong because there's rules, right? And um, you should not, you shall not talk between and uh, people who are have gone on to the next world. And she probably has like an astral or a causal incarnation that she's in right now, possibly, and you're disturbing that. And you might create attachments or something like that. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure this didn't happen in this case because I'm sure Master Mahasaya did this in a very perfect way um, to make this possible. But I guess they put all those, so he didn't put it in the autobiography of a yogi. And even in Mechda, he he put this with this caveat just because this is probably something we should not be striving mm. for in mm. our lives. Mm. Lauren? Mm, I just um, wanted to clarify. I've gone back to our previous ep episode and it says, you know, Mejda left no stone unturned in his spiritual investigations. He went often to the Nimtala cremation grounds. It was there that our mother's body had been cremated. Uh, okay. So I so think actually, potentially... He he had he had tried and that was the reason for him going there. Perhaps he wanted to commune with his mother. So yeah, he he did manage to uh, get that fulfilled. We can make our own observations yeah. as to how we feel about that, but uh, the truth remains that it happened. And um, you know, perhaps that was a, a freedom of a karmic tie, potentially, for for him that that desire was fulfilled and yeah. potentially for her as well maybe yeah we yeah don't know. because she yeah. had that um she said come come at once if you would mm. see me yeah so potentially potentially for her as well mm. but um yeah with the with your mention of the previous um chapter when he was doing that that practice of mysticism um uh, i'll have to check the exact timeline because i may have taken that Yes, yeah. it would be now, really taking interesting. that from a different or a different point of metta, mm. but um, be in, the time. in the narrative of the autobiography of Yogi, obviously, yeah, mm. he's passed passed away now. Yeah, yeah. And Mike, I guess that. Oh, sorry, yeah, Mike, again. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. The, the, this, the interesting thing for me is that it doesn't include it in the autobiography of Yogi at all. And, I suppose mm. we can guess it ourselves, you know, maybe it might be obvious that necromancy is the subject that it wants to sort of promote to the general um, person that might read this before going into the lessons and following the path of yoga and Kriya with a little bit more, let's say, seriousness and commitment that um, you might then uh, be a little bit more safeguarded by misusing sort of or misinterpreting some of these topics that um, you might put in. But it's super fascinating, though. I think it's something that um, is uh, it, it's kind of like the forbidden the forbidden fruit. That, you know, when when you hear about it, we question should we include it in the in the episodes. But um, it, it's uh, it's such interesting topics that uh, I feel we we kind of had to. But uh, Mike, back to you. Yeah, I just want to summarize that he he wasn't kidding when he said it took him many years to uh, get over it and, and to have Divine Mother take over the role that his mother had in, in giving him this, this love that he, he um, um, kind of feels he needs as a foundation. Because when he 
I'm not sure when he exactly met Master Mahashaya, but in the next chapter, he already finished school and is 18, right? So he must have been uh, in his mid-teens or late teens already by that time. And when his mom passed away, he was 11, sort of potentially seven years that he was struggling with this before he had this vision of Divine Mother that kind of gave him uh, some kind of salvation. Hmm. I wonder if anybody actually listening could help us pin this uh, specific experience down to a timeline because it is curious to me. So he storms the very gates of heaven. Um, he had a response from Divine Mother because his summons were that, uh, that uh, yeah, uh, high um, in demand that uh, the, the words, he says the words in response uh, brought some final healing to his wounds. Well, we can read it out, but we do have bits to go with this um, uh, as well. But essentially, it reads that um, the Divine Mother states that it was she or it was I who had been watched over the life after life intentness of, of many mothers seeing my gaze, the two black eyes, the lost beautiful eyes thou seekest. Interesting in so many ways, but, but what is his mother's, right? Um, and I, I wondered, you know, this is something that I am very blessed with, you know, with a mother that fits that description um, and is manifesting divine mother um, right. on a daily basis with, with me. Um, but doesn't say fathers in there at all. Is that a, <laughs> that's something <laughs> noteworthy? <laughs> Well, in, in our prayers, we have Divine Mother and Heavenly Father. They're almost interchangeable. Yes, yes, indeed, yeah. Um, Mike? And we did talk about this earlier, right? That when we look for God as a manifestation of love, we go more to the mother aspect. Um, I think that's also why Guruji does that. Mm -hmm. And we have um, a very beautiful home written shall we read that out now because essentially we're ending this part of the um chapter two with a paragraph that really talks about the return um of yogananda and his father uh to uh barely um in the morning but yogananda certainly was one with poetic skill um, he was blessed with the ability to string together words in, in ways that were truly Shakespearean. Um, pardon the, the reference to anybody who's paying attention to previous episodes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we have a, a poem um, from uh, that maybe Priyank is kind enough to read out. It's a very long poem, so we're not going to read all of it out. So we, we can read one one part yeah. of it out. Yes, it's about um, his, his mother's. The lost is called the lost two black eyes. Whence came the black eyed light flickering in my life a moment? Whither did it flit away? The twilight of many incarnations has burned in those eyes. Many lights of love dreams have met in the bower of yonder eyes. We'll put a link to the whole poem. Mm, beautiful. And I think, Mike, you just quite rightly um, corrected us that 800 miles is Borelli to 
or cut it according to Google Maps. So I think we said 300 before. So that's real-time corrections, um, <laughs> which is a great, good, good spot, Mike. So it was a very, very long journey that um, that they would have had to to yeah. take. Um, Yogananda's father, um, and and Yogananda, um, and so we, we see then Yogananda you know, saying that they returned after the rites of the uh, crematory uh, that the mother went through, um, and that it's, uh, early morning. He said that. Uh, Afterwards, every morning, uh, that he made a pathetic memorial pilgrimage, um, and uh, he says to a large shioli uh, tree, which we can talk about now. Um, but just before, it's very, very strong word, pathetic memorial pilgrimage. I thought for um, reflecting on such a young version of himself, you know, going through such pain, such trauma that he, he used this word, but I suppose he has reason for it. Um, in that uh, maybe he didn't um, didn't think it was of much use ultimately um, to his spiritual growth and to to um, to anything really to his family, but he does does make that word uh, use uses that word there. But he also uses the word shioli tree, um, and we have um, we have a little bit about this um, to to read out. Maybe Priyank, would you? Yeah, I'll just summarize mm -hmm. it. So the Shioli tree, he's mentioned it two or three times in this chapter, actually, in the next chapter as well, in the next part as well, he'll he'll talk about it. But the Shioli tree has some better, some spiritual significance and mythology in Hindu law and spirituality. And it's, it comes up here and there in lots of different uh, scriptures, the Puranas. And it's it's also named the Bari Jata tree. Um, and it's like it's like this, it's it's like this kind of sad, it's, it's got this sad connotation to it. And perhaps this is why Yogananda is like using it in this context, sad in the sense of sor sorrowful, longing, lost, you know, that kind of connotation. Um, and the it's used in four or five different uh, examples in with the gods and in Hindu law with Krishna and his consorts and you know his consort not getting getting it and her being a bit um you know a bit uh, frustrated perhaps and then there's there's stories of narada and narada giving krishna the flower um and then and then he gives it to rukumini and then and then Bama then you know doesn't isn't happy because she didn't get it so there's that and then there's it's, it's also in there's, there's a shiva story where um it comes up and uh, it's also the the nectar from it is like is is used um, and from the you know the from the flower the nectar from it is used in the shiva there's a shiva story where he's kind of churning the ocean it kind of comes out of that that um and then there's also the, there's another story about the sun god so I'll, I'll put a link to that but there's lots of uh, lots of very poetic use of this flower and its and its meaning in, in Hindu various Hindu scripture. And do we want to read the parts out um in card three point two? Yes, that's where I think we should end that. Yep. So this um this we talked about his mother's um you know his his mother's 
form, you know, him manifesting his mother's form and in his strong desire to experience her, her kind of love again. And Mike found some some beautiful passages from from where is it from Man's Eternal Quest? Is it Mike? Yes. Yep. So um, so it's, it's entitled "At Death We Are Still Encased in the Astral and Causal Bodies," and perhaps we'll end it there. When you die, your physical body of 16 elements disintegrates, but the 19 elements of your astral body remain intact. Where then are all those souls who have left this earth? They are roaming in the ether. That is impossible, you say. So let us make a comparison. If a primitive tribesman came here and I told him that music is audible in the ether, he would laugh at me or perhaps become frightened. But if I then brought a radio and tuned in a station where music was playing, he would no longer be able to deny the truth of my statement. I could similarly show you right now that astral beings are rubbing in the ether and you, could, you couldn't deny it. The astral world is right here, just behind the gross vibration of the physical cosmos. If you were to behold the multitude of astral beings in the ether, around you at this moment, many of you would be afraid and some of you would try to seek among them your departed loved ones. If you concentrate deeply at the spiritual eye, you can view with inner vision that luminous world in which we are living all this, in which are living all the souls we have gone onto the astral plane. In human beings, the heart acts as a receiving instrument and the spiritual eye as a broadcasting station. Even if you cannot see your lost beloved ones, if you can calmly concentrate your feeling on the heart, you can become aware of the reassuring presence of those dear to you who are now in astral form, enjoying their freedom from flesh thraldom. I see many astral beings who left the material plane but they cannot see me. I don't make myself visible to them, but I can behold them if I so desire. Well, it is a, a wondrous world that we live in, though. Um, and Yokananda is kindly guiding us through it bit by bit. Um, and it's just mentioned really uh, in the autobiography of a yogi. Um, and it's uh, a really lovely. Um, exercise that we're doing just to be able to pull out all the relevant bits from his other teachings and other books so awesome thanks thanks for bringing that up mike and the last last sentence is intense pangs intense pangs of longing for god assailed me i felt powerfully powerfully drawn to the himalayas and lauren can talk us through the next part that we'll go through in this chapter but before we do that's uh it's quite a difficult one wasn't it this <laughs> very difficult one perhaps it was a very difficult subject but it was quite difficult to both prepare for mm. and i think do this particular episode i don't know if you guys share that same feeling i did and I, maybe i have to apologize to the listeners as well my internet connection made me doubly kind of mm. uh challenged um, today, but I think it's a, a very emotionally charged part of the book, isn't it? That, um, I think we can all empathise with a young, a young uh, boy and a young, a young man growing up 
living through the experience of losing a mother. Um, and he's he's given it to us in such emotive language that I feel like I'm reliving it with him. And I feel like I'm almost there. And he's got a real power and a way of language that he can do that for us. Um, but certainly, I think it is quite a challenging part of the chapter to read, for sure. But it, it gets a lot more lighter as the chapter goes on, uh, in a sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and you, you feel so much compassion, like you guys said, for an 11-year-old who loses his mother. And it's it's so sweet, um, all the emotions that that he's going through. And, um, and uh, I hope we did it justice in this episode because we were trying to um, like really uh, like take this emotion and that he expresses, but also what the lessons that he's he's taking from there and he's trying to to convey to us. And so we can wrap up then in this part of the chapter two. Thanks for being on the journey with us and starting the second chapter. But we do have more to look forward to in the next part of this chapter. And Lauren's going to be taking us through it. So Lauren, do you want to give us a, uh, a run through of what we can look forward to in the next next part? Yes, although look forward to, I'm not quite sure if that's the right wording, but it's basically the aftermath of his mother's passing and how that really affects uh, young Mukunda and also his father and how that plays out in the time following. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very interesting. And again, even though it seems quite a, a brief passage of the, the book, it, it has a lot of teachings and wise words in there so I look forward to having you all there with us and look forward to talking with you all about it um, so yeah we'll see you on the next episode Jai Guru Jai Guru, Jai Guru. Jai Guru.